if you listen carefully, dot, 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 if, now here comes the biggest if of the whole sermon, the cross of Christ is not the centerpiece of your life. You can move the cross off center, or you can try to have it way out in the periphery, orbiting like a planet around the solar system's center of you. So it's possible to try to put the cross somewhere in your life. But if the cross of Christ, and you already know the answer to this, you don't need a long sermon to figure it out. If the cross of Christ is not the centerpiece of your life, this passage is going to bother you if you listen carefully and prayerfully. The passage is going to tell us that divisions in the church are an affront to Christ. But divisions in the church depend on dividers in the church. You see, divisions are not abstract. They're personal. If we're content to live with a spirit of discord among our brethren, or worse, if we provoke it, if we instigate it, you can do that with smooth-sounding words. You can do that with a very deferential, soft-spoken voice. You don't have to be loud and bombacious to be a divider. You can be a soothsaying serpent in the Garden of Eden with smooth words and cause a ton of division that wreaks a lot of havoc. If we're content, here's the sermon, if we're content to live with a spirit of discord among our brethren, then the bad news is we are setting ourselves against Jesus and his cross. And Psalm chapter 2 says, God who is in the heavens laughs when people try to make war with him. He's not intimidated because he knows the victory is certain. Our sermon title today, which is the entire sermon in a sentence, is Divisions in the Church, an Affront to the Cross, an Attack on the Cross. And the sermon text is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll pick up the reading in verse 10. I invite you there for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll read verses 10 through 17. Hear the word of the living God with every ounce of your being. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Verse 13, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one 
would say, you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether, whether I baptized any other. 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. The word of the Lord. Would you join me at the throne of grace as we ask again for God's help to consider this passage honestly. Oh, Father, the great need now is to reckon with what is so obviously said in this passage. You have not been unclear. You have not minced words. It is quite straightforward to see what you have said. So we do ask for the simplicity of clarity that we would see what you have said, but we ask for the deep work of the Spirit's ministry that we would embrace, that we would love what you have said. And that deeper than that, we would be founded in the, in the taproot of love for you. That's the great need of this church. Christ filling all in all. So Lord, instead of prayerless praying that just fills a little space in the service because it's what we're supposed to do, would you arrest every heart and every mind now? Oh, searching light, Holy Spirit, would you expose every one of us for the divisions that we have instigated? For the preferential treatment that we have paid to people in a carnal way? Would you expose right now the filth of our putting our grubby hands on your glory, trying to commandeer for ourselves what belongs to Jesus? Would you rid this church of the cancer of pride and self-serving. And Lord, we do our best to discern who gives credible professions of faith and who doesn't, but Lord, we can't see the heart. Only you can. So I'm asking you right now that if there be any unregenerate member of this church, that today you would save them. And I'm asking God that if there be any among us who have yet to know the new birth, the life-giving power of Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation. Father, for Christ's sake. Because it's your son's reputation that's on the line when we call ourselves Christians. Lord, surely you care. Lord, for Jesus' sake, would you cause this church to be truly Rooted in Christ. Come, God. Only You can do this. This is a miracle. It requires supernatural intervention 
And we're asking you to do what only you can do. And we trust that you would love to do it because you have said in no uncertain terms that it would bring you great glory to show off the worth and magnificence and majesty and grace of Jesus among your people. So Lord, we lay ourselves fresh on the altar. We're trying to do some prayerful praying right now, not just filling up space with noise. God, would you come and meet us? Come and help us. Come and exalt Jesus here. Not just in this moment. I'm talking about in our lives, Lord. In our fellowship. Rid us of the sins of Achan. And come and throne yourself again among your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The thesis verse of this paragraph is verse 10. But it's not just the thesis, the main point uh, that Paul's getting at in verses 10 to 17. It's the main point of the first four chapters. David Garland wrote in his commentary on Corinthians about verse 10, this verse contains the thesis statement for the first four chapters. And verse 10 says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. That exhortation, I exhort you, brethren, and brethren is Paul's catch-all way in all of his letters to talk about believers, brothers and sisters, the church. I exhort you, church, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree there be no divisions among you. That's the divine exhortation. That's what Paul's getting at in the first four chapters. He unpacks it in the verses to come. So verses 10 through 12 give us the, this divine exhortation and why he gives it. He had heard a bad report. That's why he gives it. Verses 13 to 16 tell us about the person and work of Christ. The person of Christ, has Christ been divided, is a rhetorical question. And the work of Christ, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's pointing to the work of Christ. So Christ's unity, has Christ been divided? Christ crucified and raised. Death, burial, resurrection, which is signified in baptism. So verses 10 to 12, the divine exhortation. Verses 13 to 16, the person and work of Christ. In verse 17, the main point of this text, following that exhortation in verse 10, the main point, verse 17, the primacy of gospel preaching. Each of those verses and each of the points they make serve as the natural divisions of the passage. You don't need special powers of interpretation. If you just read it about five times out loud, I think you would see basically those very same divisions. But we want to take those divisions of this passage one at a time to prayerfully consider them. I cannot emphasize enough how important I believe it is that when we listen to biblical preaching, and I pray that I'll do that. In fact, please pray that I will do that. I can't emphasize enough how important it is that when you listen, you pray. You have to be asking God for help as you hear because we're not good at listening and applying. So I'm encouraging you as we consider these three portions of this passage to pray about it to ask God to help you and those among us. Verses 10 to 12, the divine exhortation. Number one. So we see in the opening section of this paragraph that Paul's key exhortation is that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. But that was prompted, this exhortation, by disturbing information that Paul received. 
So let's first look at that disturbing information because that's what prompted the exhortation and the information Paul summarizes in verses 11 and 12. Look again at verse 11. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. Well, there's three parts to this disturbing information in verses 11 and 12. The first two parts are in verse 11, and the third part's in verse 12. The disturbing information, number one, verse 11, came from Chloe's people. Well, who is that? We don't know. (laughs) That's the answer. Uh, We just know very little about them. We know even less about Chloe herself. See, when Paul wrote this, he was in the city of Ephesus, He was pastoring a church there, and he was there for about three years. And at some point, either, you can put two and two together, either somebody from Ephesus had to go to Corinth, got some news about the church and brought it back to Paul, so Chloe and her people are there, or Paul knew Chloe and her family in Corinth, and things were so bad that they sent a delegation to Ephesus to tell Paul. But one way or another, Captain Obvious, Chloe's entourage brought word to to Paul about the situation of the church in Corinth. Some of her people, maybe it's her friends, her family, or some designated messengers on on her behalf. It's a feminine name. We're regarded as Paul as reliable. Paul believed what they said. Not because he was quick to jump to entertaining gossip and speculation. They obviously had some data that they shared with him, which Paul brings up in the remainder of the letter. And they accurately recounted to Paul the disturbing situation in the church. And by disturbing, I mean divisions. This bothered Paul. Paul didn't first probably pick up his quill, dip it in the ink, and get out a fresh piece of parchment and start writing. He tells us in the opening paragraph, which we looked at last week, that he goes to the prayer closet. And he asks God to minister to them. And he thanks God for his work of grace among them. Because only God can heal a broken person. And only God can heal a broken church. So this disturbing information, verse 11, comes from Chloe's people. But the disturbing information, the second part of that also in verse 11, is that there are quarrels among you. This is the disturbing part. In his commentary, Wellborn points out that the Greek word for quarrels, it's one word, quarrels among you. That's one word, it's plural. It can be translated contentions, King James Version, rivalry, Christian Standard Version. But Wellborn elaborates on it like this. It means a hot dispute, the emotional flame that ignites whenever rivalry becomes intolerable. Do you you know, I'm asking you, not telling you, it's an honest question. It's rhetorical because of the context we're sitting in, but if we were sitting across the table, I would want to hear back from you. Do you know that your heart is meant to follow your head? God wrote us a book. This is an emotional word. Let me go back to Wellborn's elaboration. A hot dispute, the emotional flame that ignites whenever a rivalry becomes intolerable. If your heart is leading in the issue and not thoughtful, biblically informed meditation that informs your heart, 
it's almost inevitable that the division will rise. That's what's going on. There are quarrels among the people, and now it's turned into an emotional flame, and it's burning the church. Paul knew that the issue was not merely differences among the people. It was division in the church. It's okay to be different, as was prayed earlier so poignantly and beautifully. Paul tells them that he's aware that the church is fractured by this flame and this rivalry, these quarrels. So first, the disturbing info came from Chloe's people. Second, it's because there are divisions in the church. And then third, verse 12, gets a little more specific. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Well, we can just tell from those four delineations that this is a quarrel, a dispute that's rooted in some kind of human partisanship, some kind of human favoritism. It's a very tough verse to understand, and I'm not so sure that I got it right last week. As I've dug into it more, I'm really confused, as are almost every commentator I've looked at, about the last little designation, I am of Christ. I mean, you do all kind of research on the history of Corinth and on the rest of the biblical data that uses that phrase. Every single time the Bible uses that phrase, it's good. And this time, why are we to take it bad? Obviously, the first three are bad, but then whether or not there was even such a party, people in the church saying, I am of Christ, has zero support. So it is a tough phrase to understand, but what is very obvious is that there was some kind of spiritual popularity contest going on in the church. People were aligning themselves with their favorites, or they thought that they would receive more benefit, like today. People boast of who led them to Christ. Oh, I was saved under so-and-so's ministry. Well, if so-and-so's name is not Jesus, who cares? (laughs) But notice that Paul does not rebuke the leaders. Nowhere in the book does he rebuke the leaders. He rebukes the church. The leaders apparently were faithful, preaching the true gospel. But apparently these faithful representatives of Christ had been commandeered by the people to form factions and divisions in the church. They even used, presumably, Jesus to promote those divisions. And that's the sinister aspect of our heart. That's why I said a moment ago at the beginning of the message, if the cross is not the centerpiece of your life, this passage is going to have some hard things to say to you if you can hear it. Because you can add Jesus to the periphery. And cause a lot of damage among his people. The reason for divisions in the church in Paul's mind is obviously the church. Not the people whose names are listed in the passage. And we know that because he mentions those same names. Paul, Apollos, Cephas in chapter 3 and 4 positively. So that's not the problem. And how easy is it, let's admit it. To do what's been happening since the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 to blame shift. To peg our issue on somebody else. Newsflash. The great rival to God in your life is self. Not Satan. He's a big problem. He's a huge problem. You are no match for Satan, but Satan is no match for God. The great rival to God in your life is you. (laughs) And that's what Paul's telling the church at Corinth. 
in this little list. Paul mentions these names again later, as I mentioned in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Apollos was famous among the churches, we know from another passage, because of his gospel preaching. He himself, Apollos, was helped by Aquila and Priscilla to understand the way of salvation, Jesus and the gospel more faithfully. We know Peter's one of the apostles, not flawless. Paul has to rebuke him in Galatians, but he's a faithful gospel preacher. I believe that Luther paraphrased this passage and what Paul meant by it so well when in the 16th century Reformation, 1500s Germany, all right, try to put your mind there. God's doing some amazing things. There's a recovery of the purity of the gospel. How does God save a soul? If we can't agree on that, we can't agree on anything. How does God save a soul? Is it by your effort and your work, a.k.a. Catholicism, or is it by Christ alone and his cross? That's the issue in the 16th century Reformation. Luther was used by God, just a man of clay feet. He's a nobody like you and me. Eminently gifted, yes. Riddled with sin, yes. But Luther was used by God, and Luther heard that the Protestants during the 16th century Reformation were being referred to by other people as Lutherans. He didn't come up with that. People started calling people that adhered to his teaching that. You know what Luther said? I love this. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I love this. Quoting Luther. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine. Nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, a poor, stinking bag of maggots that I am come to the point where people called the children of Christ by my evil name. Timothy George talks about another situation where Luther criticized preachers for loving fame. That's not what Paul's doing, but it's certainly worthy in our day. May God protect us against, Luther writes, may God protect us against the preachers who please all the people and enjoy a good testimony from everybody. Likewise, the hearers, now that's the church at Corinth, which Paul is talking about, the hearers should also say, I do not believe in my pastor. This is Luther. I do not believe in my pastor, the church should say, but he tells me of another Lord whose name is Christ. Him he shows me. I love that. This is why we stopped about a year into the church here at Grace, 11 years ago, we're 12 years old, we stopped about a year into the church publishing the names of the preacher on our sermon card and our handout. And we started, not long after that, sharing every sermon series. No one man will ever preach an entire series by himself through any book of the Bible or theme that we touch. Because though God uses people, we're dispensable. There's one and only one who's indispensable to the kingdom of God. And brace yourself for this. The only one who is indispensable to the kingdom of God, God killed him. God killed him to establish that kingdom. Let me make a shocking statement to those of us who follow Christ Jesus in the modern West. There is no place for human partisanship in the kingdom of Christ, which is represented in his local churches. 
Now, it doesn't sound so shocking. I don't see anybody storming out of the room just yet. There's no place for human partisanship in the kingdom of Christ and in his local churches. No place. Let me put it to you a little differently. Who, who is your person? Who is your favorite theologian? Let's just go a little broader. Who embraces, so you think, the most biblical expression of political activism? Let's go to the easiest access we all have. Who's your favorite social media thought leader? Who's your number one news outlet? Brace yourself for the shocking truth. The Lord Jesus. Did you notice verse 10? I exhort you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus abhors when any unifying principle other than the gospel of Christ creeps into his church. We could spend the rest of the afternoon talking about that. Does Jesus really hate it? Don't we all know that we're the most susceptible people we've ever met? What are we? Are we the Reformed church? What are we? The, the stay-at-home mom church? Are we the middle-class church? Are we the white church? Are we the young church? Are we the new church? You can use Jesus. You can just bump him a little bit off center. And I'm trying to say to you from this passage that Jesus hates it when Jesus is not the center among his people. He abhors it because it's an affront to the cross as we're going to get to in a moment. There is a king in the kingdom and we're not him. And we don't need another one. Are we in danger of similar divisions as the church at Corinth? Yes! You know why we're in danger? We is such an easy word. We are in danger because you are in danger. <laughs> you are susceptible. I am susceptible. It sure would be nice if all the other people changed to embrace the way I see the world. And that very subtly puts you at the center. I'm Baptist by conviction, not by convenience. I'm unapologetically reformed in my soteriology. I believe God saves all by himself and all for himself. I'm joyfully avowed as a Christian hedonist if you let me explain to you what that means. I'm politically conservative when it comes to the issue of killing babies. But may I set the record straight? John Calvin didn't die for my sins. No politician has ever implemented in the history of the universe in his tenure in office, a candidacy platform that made me righteous in the sight of God forever. My favorite theologians are men and women of clay feet just like you and me, and they did not rise from the dead for my justification before the face of God for all eternity. Who do you want to be the middle, the center, the focal point? If you want your favorite theologian or politician or platform politically to get a slice of the pie here, I have bad news for you. Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe that Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, do not bring that mess in here. Don't do it. And Paul was known to use some stronger words like scubala in Philippians. 
And if you know what that means, then I think that's what he would say. That's the disturbing information in verses 11 and 12, but there's a divine exhortation in verse 10. The reason he gave the exhortation is because of what I just told you. But what is the exhortation? Verse 10, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's saying these words are not merely his private opinion. They're the words of Christ Jesus, our Lord. This implies a a once dead, buried, and resurrected Jesus. He's the Lord who is speaking to them. It's not just the apostle's pen. It's Jesus' words. That's what the phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, means. And it applies to the following two statements he makes in verse 10. Do you see both of those? Number one, that you all agree. So he could grab it and say it this way. By the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I exhort you, church, that you all agree. And then we could say it again. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there be no divisions among you. These two phrases can best be understood, I think, in light of an analogy using music. So think about music, especially the church in song. The church is supposed to have differences. I hope you all know that. We're all so easily tempted to gravitate toward like kind. That's not always sinful. So when the ideological militia says that it's always wrong to always like things that are similar, that's a lie from hell. But God does love differences. So he saves different people, and then after he saves them, upon that conversion, he differently gifts them. And one of the issues in Corinth was the fact that they were divided over their different giftings that God gave them. It's just absurd. But think about music. The church is supposed to have differences, but those differences ought not be synonymous with divisions. You can be different and not divided. Instead of all being uniform, the Bible calls us to have unity in Christ. A.T. Robertson, who they said if he walked into an empty room with a gigantic stack of paper and a pen that would not run out of ink, they said A.T. Robertson could rewrite the entire Greek New Testament, including the apparatus, which is all the little translation notes at the bottom of the page. The guy knew the Bible. A.T. Robertson said, concerning this passage, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, I exhort you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to that. He said we are to be like a chorus singing from the same page of music, not like a cat's concert with each howling his or her own cacophonous tune. Same piece of music, different voices, unity without uniformity. In the church, Christ is our melody. He is the main line. As our lives are beautified by his glory and grace, which means the world won't be a happy place if everybody becomes like you. The church will become a happy place if all of us continue to change into the likeness of Christ. As we are all being beautified by his glory and his grace, we have one sheet of music, Jesus, and we increasingly sing in harmony. I'd love to just put a parenthesis right here about please try to sing louder. 
at Grace Church because it edifies each other. And if you sit way back there, you can't hear it as well as if you sit up here. So y'all all ought to be showing up early to fight to get the front row. And I mean that because it'll edify you if you hear the singing. But wherever we're at, we should sing louder. More on that another day. Can you even imagine how boring and miserable the world would be if everybody was just like you? Unity without uniformity. That you be made complete in the same mind. That you be made complete in the same judgment. Let's just take those briefly one at a time in this exhortation. The first one, verse 10, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I exhort you that you be made complete in the same mind. Little comment on that. This refers to a Christian mindset. It's what David Dockery calls thinking Christianly, with Christ at the center of your thinking. It's worth noting that this command, it's not a suggestion, it's a command, be made complete in the same mind, is followed in the very next chapter, chapter 2, verse 16, by telling them they already have that gift. We have the mind of Christ. So Paul said in chapter 1, exercise what you already possess. If Christ is in you, newsflash, you don't get to bargain with whether or not he's at the center of your thinking. It's Christ in the middle all the time of everything. And if Christ is the center of all of our thinking, then Christ is going to be the center of the church. Do you know how churches become Christ-centered? The people in them become Christ-centered. You know how churches become divided? The people in them become focused on something other than Jesus. How beautiful is the gospel? That everything God requires of us, he provides for us. Chapter 1 have one Christ-saturated mind among all the people in the church. How are we going to do that, Paul? Chapter 2, because God has precisely given you that, the mind of Christ. Second, that you be made complete in the same judgment. This is his exhortation. So one is have the same mind. Two is complete in the same judgment. This is verse 10. This refers to our applications of God's truth, how we judge, how we assess, how we apply. When we embrace the mind of Christ, or let me say it better, when we embrace that Christ's mind is ours and his word is truth, then we must work, it naturally follows, we must work to agree on the right judgments, the right appraisals, the right assessments, the right applications based on God's truth. It's one thing for the church to say something is true. We're so good at that. I mean, get in line if you want to start boycotting something in the world as the church, we can tell the world that's wrong, okay? Get in line. It's one thing to say that something is true, right or wrong. That's rendering judgment. But it's another thing for the truth of Christ to contaminate everything the church does. So now we've got another question, don't we? We asked at the beginning, is the cross the center of your life? If not, you're one of the ones who's very dangerous to the church. But we've got another question now, don't we? Does the truth of Christ force all of your judgments into subjection to the Lordship of Jesus? If you don't have a verse for what you're really fired up about? Why don't you just pray about it for a while before you bring it in as the number one thing that the church ought to be focused on?
When we embrace the mind of Christ as ours and his word as truth, then we must work, work, work to agree on the right judgment based on God's truth. It's one thing for the church to say something is true. It's another thing for the truth of Christ to contaminate everything we do. Paul is saying there's no room left for self when every person in the body is concerned with having the mind of Christ and the application of the truth of Christ in all of our lives. You see, nobody's exempt. We all have to constantly be confronted with the truth if, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are being made complete in the same judgment. The truth is affecting everybody and changing us all. Well, number two, not only the exhortation, but verses 13 to 16 the person of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Now, although it may sound like an, a, a gross oversimplification, 1 Corinthians teaches us that churches would live in sweet harmony with God and one another, which, by the way, you want that more than you know you want that. You were created for that. Sweet harmony with God and one another. Oh, what a great place to live. All right? 1 Corinthians teaches us that churches would live in sweet harmony with God and one another if we deeply believed the Bible's answer to this question. How many parts are there to Jesus? That's the question for the unity of the church. If he's divided, then we can be divided too. But if he's unified and we're all coming to God through that one Redeemer, then there is a theological, not logical, it is God's logic that we have to be unified as well. Look in verse 13. Do you see where I get this? I see unity, humility, and trinity in verse 13. Number one, unity. Has Christ been divided? Humility. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Trinity. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Point one, unity. This is a vivid piece of imagery in verse 13. I would venture to guess that those of you who become weak at the sight of blood would faint if you could see verse 13. It is a vivid statement. Has Christ been divided? What a domesticated way to talk about the butcher shop quartering the animal. Paul's drawing out pictures of what happens under the hatchet to the sacrifice. David Garland said this vivid imagery of Christ sliced into fragments is Paul's first move decrying the divisions among them. Do you see the absurdity in the point Paul makes? It's obviously a rhetorical question. If you want a divided church, now here comes the vivid imagery. You're the one with blood all over your hand. You're the one with the hatchet. And the blood drips off the hatchet, and it's all over your arm, and you're standing in the presence of God. And let me tell you, Paul, say, what you're doing. You're grabbing the glorified Jesus, 
and you are severing his appendages and you're giving one part to this side of the church and you're giving one part of Christ to that part of the church and you're giving another part of Christ to that part of the church. Do you want to answer to God for that? The only way to have a divided church is to have a divided Jesus. It's a betrayal of the message of the Gospel. It's a betrayal of the person of Christ. The simplicity of God. Does He have a trillion beautiful attributes? Yes. Is He perfectly harmonious in His one person? Yes. He's not God or man. He's the God-man. He is one beautiful person. We Christians fundamentally believe that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And Paul's application of that truth to the Corinthians, that there is one Savior for sinners, one Savior for sinners, is that Christ saves, if Christ saves any from any so-called group, then he saves them into his one body because there's only one Jesus. Now I'm going to do a little parenthesis and get myself in a ton of trouble you can email me later this week if you want to. I'll get to it when I can. I'm not just trying to be silly. This is why I do believe it's a subtle betrayal of the gospel to have a niche church. You can't do a college church. You can't do a motorcycle bike group church or a cowboy church. You can't do it because Church is ecclesia, called out ones. So he's calling some of you from pagan ranks of monetary superiority and thinking you're better than everybody. He's calling others of you from abject poverty. He's calling some of you from one ethnic group and some from another. He's calling some old people and young people and some female people and male people. And he's calling all these people into one family. Which shows the beauty and greatness of Jesus. Which is the whole point. There's unity in Christ. His one body, the church, because there's only one Jesus. That's unity. Humility is also in verse 13. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? This is the irony of all ironies. That the Christians in Corinth were proud. They thought that attaching a spiritual celebrity's name to their spiritual experience would make them more spiritual. How often do we do that? Hey man, have you heard that sermon from Paul Washer? Yeah, I've listened to it 12 times. I, I've met Paul, so I use his name on purpose. It, he's not impressed with Paul. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, just keep on going. You can't be proud though, can you? In the presence of a humble mediator. This is where I see humility. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Jesus was. Are you kidding me? Is this fairy tale? Did the king of the ages, the ancient of days, the ruler of the kings of the earth, did the one who sits above the circle of the earth, the one who calls all the stars by name and not one of them is missing, did the God who spoke the galaxies into existence step into time through the womb of a little teenage version and live in this dusty, sin-torn world as a servant of the servants? And then in that humility, 
Did he in perfect obedience, filling up all righteousness in a life of unfettered devotion to the Father's will, submit himself as the crowning act of his obedience to death on a cross? If you separate the man hanging on the tree from the Messiah in the heavens that the saints praise, then you can't see humility. But if you see that the one who deserves and receives all the glory of heaven is the same one who was spit on outside of Jerusalem by some punk soldiers who didn't know that he created them, then you'll be proud. But if you realize that Christ was crucified for, now wait for it, you, you, then you can't be proud. You can't be proud in the presence of a humble mediator. No one's more exalted. No one's stooped lower. Grace runs downhill. You can't have the grace of God and pride at the same time. He's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Are you puffed up with spiritual pride? Look at the humble mediator. That's the only remedy. That's it. Look at him hanging on a cross for you. And third, I see Trinity. Unity, humility, and Trinity. This is verse 13. Were you baptized in the name, singular, of Paul? Paul did baptize a few people, and beyond that he couldn't remember. I think it's a rhetorical device, by the way. I think he did remember. Or he, I take a lot of comfort in it because I forget what I had for breakfast this morning, and uh, maybe he did forget. But I think it's a rhetorical device. I don't remember if I baptized anybody else beyond Crispus Gaius. Oh, yeah, yeah, Stephanus and his house. I don't, I don't know anybody else. But he uses singular. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see, baptism is designed by God to be a Christian's declaration to the whole world that we believe in a unified, triune God. One God, not three. Paul is engaging in the foolish talk to expose its absurdity. Were you baptized in my name? If so, that won't unify the church because you know what? Paul's not there anymore. And somebody else is baptizing some people now. And one minister can't baptize all the believers. Which is the point. Has it dawned on you that we don't even know the names of most of the pastors of the New Testament churches? Paul is saying it's not about who baptized you, it's about whose name into which you were baptized. There's a baptism formula, verbiage, that's not supposed to become white noise when you hear somebody baptized. And that formula dates back to the first century on a mountain overlooking the city of Jerusalem, Olivet. When Jesus, in all his resurrected glory, gave the great commission to his disciples, and he said to them, baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not names, name. That's where I see Trinity. This came from the lips of our risen Lord. That's why when we baptize somebody here, we say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Tom Schreiner said, baptism in the name of Christ and thus the person, baptism is in the name of Christ and thus the person who performed the baptism is insignificant. The true church baptizes in no other name. 
The true church baptizes in no other name. The true church baptizes in no other name. The true church baptizes in no other name. I'm saying that over and over because I continue on one hand to be baffled and on the other hand to be burdened when people who believe in baptismal regeneration are surprised when I think they're not Christians. That's what Paul's talking about. See, I baptized you, you, you. Can't really remember anybody else. If it's so essential to your redemption, you should do some remembering, Paul. No, no, no. It's a sign of the God who saves, not the act that saves. Well, verses 14 to 16 tell us about the place of baptism in the Christian life. Paul's busy thanking God that he did not take part in one of the most important steps that any Christian can take. This is ironic. I thank God, verse 14. He's telling God, thank you that I didn't baptize a bunch of people. Now, isn't that strange for a minister to say? While in our day, we're busy boasting of all our inflated numbers of baptism, it's all the same people getting baptized over and over again, and all the same churches just keep reporting all the same numbers of all the same people. And Paul's not on that bandwagon. Let's be clear. Paul's motive for why he's thanking God that he didn't baptize a lot of people is verse 15. So that no one would say you're baptized in my name. Paul's not disparaging baptism. David Garland said he's not disparaging baptism as something unimportant, but he downplays the role of the one who performs the baptism. Baptism does not convey salvation. Only faith in Jesus Christ does, which is why Tom Schreiner said the fascination of some of the Corinthians with the fact that Paul baptized them reveals that their understanding of baptism is separate from the gospel. So verse 14, he baptizes Crispus and Gaius. Verse 16, he doesn't know if he baptizes anybody else beyond Stephanus and his household. According to Acts 18, Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue. That means a Jewish guy got saved, so Paul baptizes him. Gaius hosted the whole house in his church, which probably means he was a very rich, influential person in the city. Paul baptized him. And then Stephanus, we're told later in the book, chapter 16, verse 16, that the church is supposed to submit to him. So apparently Stephanus became the pastor and Paul baptized him. Beyond that, they can deal with it. They can baptize the rest of the people. I think he's showing that he led some people to Christ. He baptized, he baptized them. And Christ established the church, which is given the ordinance of baptism. And as a unified, Jesus-centered church, they should continue to perform the ordinances of, that, that he's given, baptism in the Lord's Supper, representing the fullness and grace of Jesus. And it's not Paul's job to do that. It's the church's job to do that. I think it's a rhetorical device to make a point. Baptism is not a sacrament that saves you. It's a sign that ought to be applied by the church to the saved. Last but not least, number three, the primacy of gospel preaching. I have half a page of notes. I have a deep desire that I wish I had 100 hours to talk to you. The primacy of gospel preaching. We say it a lot here, but we're saying it again because we've got some new ears around and many of us have forgotten that we say it so often. Isn't this strange? I got all the, his, all the information in the history of the world on a gadget that fits in my pocket. Why are you sitting in this room listening to one-man monologue? It's certainly not convenient. It's not very efficient. And it's so out of step with our modern world and technology, isn't it? Why are you here? Why are we doing this? 
because it is a parable of salvation. The reason God ordained preaching and the foolishness of it, as Corinthians is going to talk about, as the medium through which the gospel runs and souls are saved is because it's a parable of the gospel. What I mean is, like Ezekiel preaching to dry bones, they do nothing, God does everything as the word is proclaimed, so also preaching the gospel is the means that God has ordained for the propagation of life in Christ among a dead and dying world on its way to hell. The primacy of gospel preaching. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Without gospel preaching, nobody will be saved. I don't mean they have to be saved in the church service, but I am firmly convinced that most people who think their salvation happened on Tuesday probably happened during the sermon. God just gave life. As Jonathan Edwards said, a divine and supernatural light immediately imparted to the soul. When for the first time you look away from yourself and you look on to Christ in all of his redeeming glory and you thrust your helpless soul into his almighty arms. That happens by faith instantaneously. And some of you may have been converted today. Without gospel preaching, nobody will be saved because Romans says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Baptism, Paul just told us, is the sequel to that. It's for believers after they hear and receive the gospel. Paul was sent for the substance, not the sequel. The ordinances were given to the church. Those churches like Corinth and Ephesus can figure out who's giving a credible profession of faith and who they ought to apply the sign of Christ's covenant to. That's baptism. This phrase, though, not cleverness of speech, is important for us to grasp in our age of one-liners. Social media like Twitter where everybody's trying to say the pithiest statement in the most succinct fashion so they can just get a following. Eloquence, eloquence, Garland writes, that elevates the status of the preacher cancels the power of the cross. Do you get more or less excited based on who's preaching? or what's being preached. We must get this right. The preacher of the gospel is not inspired. The gospel word that he preaches, the text of scripture is inspired. It's a Genesis 3 issue again. Not in cleverness of speech. I can hear Paul as he's writing on this parchment doodling on the page next to him a picture of a tree and the serpent and Adam and Eve. Not clever speech. Gospel proclamation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Romans 10, how is anybody going to believe? Somebody has to preach to them. Preachers who focus on turns of phrase to wow the audience are robbing their hearers of the greatest privilege of looking in amazement at the love of God and the cross of Christ. And that was a very eloquent way to say only Jesus can save you. It's important to be precise. And it's hellish to use Jesus to try to 
pretty up oneself. If you use Jesus, and I use Jesus to make me or you look better, then there's a day of judgment coming for which hell itself does not have enough fury. It empties the cross of its power. What's Paul talking about? I am an unashamed Calvinist. How do you empty the cross of its power? I believe that the cross is so powerful that it turns on your faith, not that your faith is so powerful that it turns on the cross. I believe Jesus died for people and that he will do what he said in the Gospel of John. He will not lose one that the Father has given to him. That he has laid down his life for the sheep and he did die for the church. Okay, there's a little soteriology for you. How do you empty the cross of its power? I love this verse. There are two sides to the cross, but there was only one man on it. There's only room enough on the cross of Jesus for one person. And he was already placed there by God. And a preaching that seeks to place us in Christ's place is a mockery of the gospel that empties it, makes void its power to save. Thistleton said, to be full of oneself as a golden tongue preacher is the opposite of emptying oneself of oneself, which is the paradigm of the cross. Using smooth words to appeal to emotions may gain a tremendous ascent, large churches, and numerous baptisms. But I can also tell you on the basis of this verse and many others, it will also gain you many false conversions. So I conclude here. The Gospel. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel. Not in eloquence of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Friends, here's the Gospel. And as Spurgeon said, many people can preach the Gospel better than me, but nobody can preach a better Gospel Here's the gospel. And I just pause, not for dramatic effect, but just to give another prayer in the privacy of my heart as I'm talking to you that God would let the next 60 seconds be the most significant of your entire eternity. Jesus Christ, God's own eternal Son, was sent according to the plan of God to rescue sinners who are so ruined in their sin that they cannot do anything to save themselves and any contribution you make to your redemption only worsens your damnable predicament. God will be more just in sending you to hell forever if you try to help Jesus save you. But God, knowing that we cannot save ourselves, sent one who is perfectly suited and capable. Christ the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, has lived the life that you and I were supposed to live. And then he did die the death that you and I were supposed to die. And upon the cross, he was a substitute for sinners like you and me. 
perfectly filling up God's demand that his justice be satisfied and perfectly filling up his demand that righteousness be achieved if we would be saved. And when Christ died on the cross, he meant what he said, it is finished. He did all that God required for you to be made right with God forever. All that God required. And if you will, the Bible says, turn from your sin. And the worst part of your sin is your self-righteousness. The worst part is not the bad you've done. That's terrible. Yes, you should go to hell for every sin you've committed. But the Bible also says you should go to hell for the good things you never did that you were supposed to do. Sins of commission, bad things you did. Sins of omission, good things you should have done. But worse than that, worse than that, is all the good that you think makes God like you more. That's called self-righteousness. So you have to take sides with God against your sin. That's why Jesus died. How can you hang on to sin if Jesus died for it and you're trying to hang on to Jesus? You can't. Not only must you take sides with God against your sin, you must take sides with God against yourself. See, God's not going to send sin to hell. He's going to send sinners to hell. You have to take sides with God against you. What you've done is bad, but you are the problem. You were made in God's image to reflect His glory like the moon that has no light was made to reflect the sun. You were made to know and enjoy God and to show off His brilliance and greatness, but we're all ruined in our rebellion. We are all swept away in this sea of depravity, totally ruined. But Christ is of such value and is such a wonderful Savior that there is more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in all of us. And if you'll plunge your wretched self down into the pure waters of the life-giving fountain of Christ, turn from your sin, turn from yourself, believe that God raised him from the dead and will fill you with Christ's own life. Now, you've got to count the cost. Jesus said, don't you start building a house unless you first sit down and calculate how much it'll cost. This is what I'm saying to you. I'm not preaching to you a cheap gospel. This isn't easy believism. Pray your little prayer. Live however you want to. Go to heaven when you die. I'm telling you that if you ask Jesus Christ to fill your life, then you will want what Paul's talking about in verses 10 to 17. All your thoughts, all your judgments, all your relationships. Christ gets all of you forever with no exceptions. You draw zero lines in the sand and say, God, you can come this far in my life, but no further. If that's the Christianity you want, I have nothing to offer you. But if you want life everlasting and joy unspeakable, full of glory, ever increasing for all eternity, his name is Jesus. And he will save you right now. And yes, I'm passionate about it. How can you not be? But passion doesn't save people. Jesus saves people. And if you'll throw your helpless soul into the arms of a ready Jesus, he'll save you forever. This is the gospel. This is the power of God. And he's coming again to gather his saints into endless bliss. And it's for that day we desperately long and anticipate. But you know one reason he hadn't come back yet? This is amazing. God is not slow concerning his promise, as some men count slowness. But God is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why didn't Jesus come back last night while you were in your sleep? 
Now, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That he didn't come back? 1998, 2007, 2016. Isn't that amazing? That he brought you here today to hear this word. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we do ask that Jesus, the beautiful Lord, our Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, would be holding his rightful place of honor. I don't know how else to ask it other than that. You know, Lord, deep in my heart, in our hearts, we're praying that on the basis of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 to 17. All our thoughts, all our judgments, all our actions, that this church would be full of Jesus. And that he would not be in, a, in the most silly and really, really stupid way, divided here. One Jesus, one body, unity in Christ. And Lord, we do pray for our friends who don't pray for themselves, the people who don't even know that they need a Savior. Oh God, oh God, would you wake them up out of their spiritual stupor and death, cause them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.